Hey, everyone, and welcome to the February 2023 edition of the Delivered Lumens podcast. I'm JP Bedell. My guest this week is Jane Slade. She is probably the most well-known advocate for dark skies and natural light cycles um, around today. Her uh, Instagram account, Anatomy of Night, um, which is also her website, anatomyofnight.com, is just a wealth of insights into the benefits of dark skies, the benefits of following the natural lighting cycle of the day. Um, and in this episode, we talk about darkness design. We talk about impact of artificial light throughout our night, but we also talk about the need to find time in the day to reduce our, um, our stimulation. It's, um, it's so easy these days to be overstimulated with our phones and with TV and with streaming and with all the things that ping and light up. Um, and Jane's a real advocate for improving our mental health through um, quiet and not just auditory quiet, but visual quiet. And for that, we need darkness. So it's a great conversation. I learned a lot. Um, we talked about all kinds of different issues uh, around darkness, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here's Jane Slade. Jane, welcome to Delivered Lumens. Thank you, JP. It's so nice to sit down with you. I love, you know, working alongside with you in the lighting industry. Um, you know, we have followed each other on Instagram for a long time. I'm a big admirer of your your advocacy for dark skies and um and natural light. Um, but we've you've never come into the shed virtually. And so here we are. <laughs> It's true. And um, I've loved what you've been doing in terms of showcasing lighting and um, really showing the performance of the fixtures uh, through content. I think that's a really original direction to be um, going in so that people can see how a fixture performs from their own phone. So I think that's really awesome. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so one of the reasons I wanted to, to start this podcast was I wanted to take lighting issues that tend to be discussed within the lighting industry and open those conversations up to folks that um, may or may not be thinking about light every day because they're normal people. They're not like us. <laughs> um, and uh, But make try to make a bridge or, or build a bridge to understanding why these things are important. And no one does that, I think, more effectively on social media than you do in how you talk about dark sky. Um, there's a real human quality to what you, you put out there. Um, and I don't think you need to be a lighting person or, um, you know, a technical person at all to understand this, the concept and grasp it based on, on what you create. Um, so thank you for your work, first of all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and I want to start off really like at the very top of this issue. So why are dark skies so important? Um, and I think there's probably two tracks to that. Why are they important for wildlife and why are they important for us as people? Yes. Um, well, so darkness has existed as half of the planetary experience for as long as the earth ever existed. In fact, it was this uh, dust and gas that condensed into a and rotated um, from the beginning and then turned into the earth as it uh, became more dense. So, Night has always existed. It is literally older than living things in hmm. terms of the earth. So when we change that experience, light and temperature are two fundamental environmental factors for all living things. And just this morning on the news, uh, 
I was listening to the fact that we're seeing a mental health crisis for mm -hmm. especially teenagers. And the landscape of light in a teenager's life has completely changed with the advent of the iPhone. Mm -hmm. And so we're bringing these iPhones into our beds at night, sometimes staying awake, uh, you know, late into the night with, you know, if you could ever close your eyes and see a rectangle, mm. uh, you know, you're creating circadian stimulation. Mm. And so from a human point of view, this is a mental health crisis. And that's mm. the way that I want to frame it. I mean, we could talk about hormones and, you know, insomnia and um, cancer suppression, all of these physical effects of um, in darkness. But in reality, I think the main issue for humans is actually the mental health issue. Mm -hmm. uh, for wildlife, it's a first line of defense. Uh, you know, people don't uh, necessarily, I mean, mental health is a, is a survival issue for sure, but um, really what we see is depression as one of the main uh, symptoms of, of light at night. However, with wildlife, this is deadly. And um, so for wildlife, darkness and access to the night sky is truly a first line of defense uh, for, for birds and many migratory species. Starlight is a map, um, including animals as small as a dung beetle use the star, the map of the stars to actually find their place on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that we have only so far concentrated or focused in the narrative on sea turtles, I think is really misinforming the public because it's every single species. Mm -hmm. And so um, in my view, without wildlife health, there really is no human health. However, with um, humans, if wildlife were enough to turn the tides of industries, we would see advancements towards sustainability in many, many sectors. And unfortunately, it isn't. And so that actually has been a defining pivot in the way that I engage audiences on social media, right, right. which is that I have wanted to take this conversation outside of the lighting industry and to bring it to humans who are all impacted. So the language that I choose is deliberate to try and be inclusive of anyone impacted by light at night. Yeah, and I think that's that's really what so many people are drawn to by your, your work and your content is that um, it becomes a human issue and it becomes a, um, for lack of a better term, a humanist issue, right? If you're at all interested in the, the welfare of uh, the rest of the natural world, then you should be interested in this topic. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, if not specifics, um, maybe some ideas of, I think one of the reasons that this gets forgotten, I think everyone hears about it and I think they generally care about it while they're being talked to about it. And then they go back and they live their lives and like, you know, they leave the lights on and they check their phones and, you know, um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the maybe um, less perceived negative impacts of having the bright nights that we do, whether we're talking about at the residential scale or maybe how cities or municipalities deal with this issue. Sure. I, I, it's, it's a false dichotomy that we can't light for human activity and do a better job for wildlife and bring mm. darkness back into our lives. Um, and that's quite a loaded question. I could go in so many directions. <laughs> on the question. Um, but 
Uh, I never want to advocate for creating unsafe environments for humans. We do need light at night. That's just going to be needed for the way that humans live on this planet. However, I think we could do a much better job of sharing the temporal space that light and darkness pass through, through the use of controls. So we don't need to keep all lights on throughout the night. We can keep them on as needed and then turn them off. That would bring a lot of the impact down. Mm. Um, now, in terms of bringing this into our daily lives rather than you know learning and forgetting and just kind of continuing on, I think that we need to bring more ritual and vernacular around mm. natural darkness and uh, a lot of what I've been saying lately is that when we're in natural darkness, which you could consider starlight, moonlight, candlelight, and firelight, um, anything in those dimmer dynamic lights. And those are the moments that we are spending time with our loved ones, breaking bread, putting our children to bed, cuddling, nuzzling. These are the moments we are waiting for through our days. Mm -hmm. And when light creeps up into our nights, we have our to-do list visible on our phones. Mm -hmm. Everything is visible in our space. When darkness sets, actually, even the own, our own boundaries of our bodies start to disappear. And this brings a kind of weightless quality to our thoughts. Mm. That lack of limitation actually is a gateway to greater depths of imagination and problem solving. Um, and so, you know, like high ceilings, I've always felt have really been very helpful for creativity and there's no higher ceiling than the night sky. Right, so right. I think that we, if we can start to incentivize humans by developing more vernacular and ritual around these experiences that we can start to bring night into a way that actually sticks in our lives. Mm. Yeah. It feels like, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think, one of the things that you're you're talking about here is, um, and it is it is a little bit countercultural, is this idea that um, there's real value in silence. There's real value in um, silence, both from an auditory standpoint, but also visual silence. Right? That um, I really think that, and it, even in the, the the advice you read online about like sleep um, sleep rituals. It really does become this idea that like darkness equals time for bed mm -hmm. and not necessarily that darkness can be a, a safe meditative time, a time to sort of reduce your stimulation, a time to be with yourself or with the people that you care about. Um, you know, I, the, but the problem I think is that, you know, but, but what's on Netflix tonight, right? Like what's on, you know, what's on uh, your favorite streaming app? Like, have you seen the latest, whatever, um, uh, there, all of our, our entertainment, our stimulation, not all of it, but the vast majority of what is sort of talked about in the culture are these lit objects, um, whether we're talking mm -hmm. about screens or we're talking about lit environments. So maybe this is a conversation as much about, um, the value of quiet and the value of, um, unplugging as it is uh, about light. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to say though, I don't have a problem with movies or Netflix. Um, mm. and the reason is, is that if you look at the, um, experience of going to the movies, you know, even, you know, starting from when movies began, but the public would go into a darkened theater, right? Maybe during the day 
and have this whole experience in the dark. And um, actually studies have shown that when um, the TV is on, it doesn't have the same circadian impact because it's right. so much further away from the retina. Right. Um, and so I also think, um, so I, I feel like it's too much to ask the modern public to say you can't watch Netflix at night. Right. And so I'm very happy to be able to say, I don't really even think that's the problem because what I think more is the problem is that when we have our phones, it's like the moment is available to be in Timbuktu, in Australia. I could be on a Zoom with you recording. I, you know, so everything is fissured. And I think that has really mm. created this mental health aspect. And then we're also putting this light right on our eyes. And I think that's also a, a major problem. But when you watch a movie, um, there's a closed aspect to it because no one else is watching that movie in right. that moment. So there's sort of like, a, um, maybe you could say that the, the movie or the non-connected um, television source um, is like the modern day fireplace. Um, okay. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think I, there's, there's definitely something to that. I, I think the other, the other thing that I, I bristle against is you'll see some influencers online, um, especially in the sort of mental health space who will quote, you know, a study um, and as gospel truth instead of evolving science. And they'll say something like, you know, any kind of screen light after 11 o'clock will make you depressed, right? There was a clip going around that, you know, somebody who's got like a, you know, 4 million followers or something. And I know that clip. I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah um, 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. was what right, he said. Right. It. And I think the problem with making a universal rule like that is as soon as somebody says, I don't know, I watch TV until 1130 at night and then I go to sleep and I'm fine. I'm not depressed. I'm, you know, I wake up and I'm good. My day is, you know, they take the whole discussion and they sort of push it to a side because it's not matching up to their lived experience. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what, what my, my point is that there are adaptive ways to deal with these things. And I think, any one of these um, these issues can sort of be modulated to a, a healthier place for the individual. What I think is interesting, and I, I would get, like to get your perspective on is, okay, so dark skies are something that we can actually immediately impact much more so than other environmental issues, right? In terms of what I can actually do in my home tonight. I can make the world a little bit darker at night on my own. Um, what are some thoughts that you have around what, you know, I live in suburbia, but you know, what people that live and have some more control over their, their lighted environment, what should people be thinking about when it comes to a darker sky? Um, you mean like a darker sky in their lives or. Yeah. So I guess like I think about my, my yard, like my, I have a little 70 foot backyard back here and it's like its own little you know, biosphere, its own little environment, right? And so I try to make an effort to make sure that once the sun goes down, I may have lights on in the house, but that the shades are drawn or that, you know, I'm not, you know, tossing a ton of light into that yard because I want to try and give, like my daughters like the fireflies, right? And they won't come out if, you know, a bunch of the floodlights are on in the backyard. And, you know, so that kind of thing, those kinds of, uh, what are some of those things that we can start to think about mm -hmm. to, to bring a little more healthy darkness into our, our daily lives? 
Absolutely. And I'll tell you a fun fact about fireflies, which is that in the presence of light, they did a study and the fireflies exhibited 50% less flashes in the presence of light. Right. Um, so you're absolutely right about that. And um, I would say that we need to make an invitation to darkness. Um, and I thought what well, something you said earlier was really interesting, which is that we just associate darkness with bedtime. Um, and so actually I'm really nocturnal. So the way that that sounds to me is like really like boring. <laughs> if, if darkness is only associated with bedtime, then I'm like, oh, you know, and I think actually there's so much more enjoyment that can be found in darkness and it can start at dusk. And so one thing that I always do is when dusk starts to set, I turn off all the lights mm. and I let the light fade in my space. And I think that, I don't know this scientifically, I just know this intuitively. I think that that is majorly impactful on mm. our system of perception, on our bodies, on our sense of timing and day. And I think when you allow dusk to set, it's a very powerful moment um, and even taking five minutes away to experience the sky at dusk is really beautiful. And then often like I will turn the lights back on to cook dinner and all of that. So I think there are different ways to experience night and darkness in a more modern way that's more feasible. Um, but I will say like nights I've been really sad, I've kept the lights always low. Then mm -hmm. can't candlelight to support my emotional state, like not wanting more information. Mm. Um, you know, I also think um, when you're gathering with people, dimmer lights can help people be more vulnerable and more open and that it changes the conversation. So I think lights can also be a way by dimming them really low to generate different types of human connection. Mm. Um, and this is something that I've said on Instagram, which is that when we only experience bright environments, we limit ways of human connection. And so I think by redefining this time at night and maybe buying a little, a few extra lights that allow to have dimmer, um, more kind of uh, textural qualities, because when the lights get dim, everything starts to have shadows and everything. Yeah. So I think if we can make an invitation to kind of think about it as this moment to behold, then we can start to experience it. And then hopefully, I mean, I don't know to the extent that, you know, my house is a creator of light pollution and sure many people are not sure of that themselves as well. But I think if we can start to experience it and behold it ourselves, we can start to change how people perceive this period and then also advocate better. So let's, let's zoom out a little bit and mm. talk about dark skies as a matter of public policy and as a matter of what municipalities maybe on, on grander scales should be thinking about what we should be advocating for. Because as much as we may or may not be able to impact our individual experiences, right. uh, we have to collectively work on these larger policy questions. And I, I'm, I know from your previous work that you've, you've advocated on this front too. So, um, Let's frame the issue and then talk a little bit about how, what we want to see to improve it. Sure. Well, <clears throat> the model lighting ordinance was created in 2011. Unfortunately, it was not widely adopted because, um, and I'm sure you've come across this JP, but a lot of the lighting decision makers aren't actually educated in lighting. So basic metrics like a lumen, a candela, a foot candle, 
the 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 person doesn't know what those are. So making your way through that document without that level of understanding is very hard. And so it really was not widely adopted for, for reasons such as that. Um, and so now in my advocacy, I do say to communities asking, you know, for um, how to do a better job for night skies, I say, don't look to your neighbors, be the leader. And so what we're seeing is more and more communities really taking that on themselves. And my, I guess my number one answer to your question is if you have a lighting design plan, then you also need a darkness design plan hmm. that we have to start from a starting place of darkness um, to build in space for it because sure. it's all too easy, not only to over illuminate with LEDs and their sheer power, but also the human eye takes an hour to adapt to darkness. So it's so vulnerable. And so unless we really advocate it from the beginning and dovetail that with a lighting design plan, we're not really gonna see that movement. So I think it's sure. really important for communities to generate that conversation. It, you know, do, can Should we set a civil midnight, which would be the idea of like setting at 11 p.m. and then that's, you know, 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. are our darkness hours. Um, right. And maybe you can do lowered levels or you could design a path of light through a community and then the outside of the path, um, there's more either lower light or no light at all. And so if we can start thinking from that place, I think we can develop much darker environments. Do you think part of the issue is that in many, at least North American environments, we are still lighting for cars from the 1960s and not lighting for people who may be walking. Because I think that's that to me is, I think we get it exactly backwards. I think we light roads for cars that have headlights <laughs> um, and we tend to not light pathways for people who do not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, I think we could almost instantly reverse some of these issues if we started to think about who actually needs light and in what quantities um, that might, do you, what do you think about that idea? I think that's so true. And I think a lot of this comes from, you know, the fact that, I mean, that I'm really spitballing here, but the car industry here um, was a major part of American industry. And I totaled my car in 2018 and um, I had a new car because of insurance, like instantly, right, right. you know, I was like, not at all punished for that. You know, it was like, so pro car. I mean, I yeah. just was like, this thing just manifested itself. And I, I like ruined one and had another, it just shocked me at the like level of capitalism and all of that. And so I think it's interesting that you point out, and this has been a, a an emerging discourse on how to light, um, which is maybe creating more contrast to be able to see pedestrians so that they pop and that the rest of the road is darker so that we're relying on the headlights. Um, and so we, I do agree that there is a flipping of, of our strategy that's kind of emerging now. Um, but I think you're right that if we were able to kind of reconsider some of these decisions, there would be a much more opportunity for darkness. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there is a way to spin that in a pro car direction. I think what you can say is, listen, cars are so sophisticated now and the sensors are getting so much better and the illumination that these things can do is so much more sophisticated than it used to be. I mean, there are adaptive headlights that turn as the car turns and all this. We can really make it a pro-car conversation. 
right. um, if that's what's needed to, to move the ball forward. But I think our lighting strategy was essentially adopted around the time of automobiles are really emerging, right? So the 40s, 50s. And it was like, well, the best thing we know to do is put some, you know, the brightest lamps we can find on the top of poles and light the street so that people can see cars coming. Um, that was, it was no more sophisticated than that. And instead of, as the technology of, of automotive, of, of cars adapted moving forward, <laughs> um, we just sort of, you know, change the technologies that sat on top of those poles. We went to high pressure sodium, then we went to metal halide. Now we went to, now we're in LED world. Um, and I think that's the other part of this that, and, and I know you've written about this and you've talked about this too. As technology shifted to LED, it's like, we can get even more lumens for less energy. Isn't that great? <laughs> and in principle, I guess it might be, but not really, right? Because <laughs> this is what we have is overlit nighttime environments. Yeah, I, I refer to that jokingly as lighting diabetes because we're <laughs> taking on way more light than we need and creating this impact. Mm. Um, and the other thing that you made me think of is um, we have, if you want to sell the car, um, I don't think there's been much as uh, enough attunement to the power of light on and within cars. Um, there has been times where people have complained to me that their dashboard is too bright sure. or the headlights are offensive to oncoming drivers. So if there was better integration of the power of light on and in the car responsive to how we're lighting the streets, I think that is probably the ticket right there. Yeah, I know that the uh, the Light and Health Research Center is actually working with some of the automakers on uh, systems that would be adaptive in that mm -hmm. world, right? So the idea would be that the street lights and the the, auto, the cars themselves would have some means of a sort of near field communication, and so the car would realize I'm on a heavily lit street, and it would turn its headlights down. And, you know, then it would move into an area where there wasn't as much street light and it would adapt their headlights for those environments. Yes. Um, you know, there's, so that's, it's definitely something that the automakers are thinking about. Um, when that becomes a reality, I couldn't tell you, but I know that it's at least on the, on people's minds. They understand that the headlight thing is offensive. I think that there's just this bias toward over lighting and over safety. Um, uh, so streetlights are the thing that I, that I think we think about. Um, you know, I, I wonder what your thought is on, you know, environments like Las Vegas or Times Square. I think of these things as actually kind of a good thing. They are, they are mm -hmm. the, the, they are the antithesis, the antithesis, but they're also destinations, right? I don't think it's a problem to have a Times Square that's like obscenely lit because people go there for that experience. Yeah. The problem becomes when we get creep, right? When we get outside of those environments. What do you think about zoning? And maybe we can create, an, uh, you know, more thoughtful zoning policies around where light is high, why light levels are higher or lower. Yeah. I, I actually don't disagree with you too hard on mm. the Times Square, Las Vegas point you're making. Um, I think that you're right. The problem, people do go there. They're destinations for light itself. Um, and people love the strip. They love Times Square. Um, I think it would be really cool just to turn the lights off there for a second and see what happened. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Have that juxtaposition. I don't know if it would be publicly safe. Um, but a lot of what I advocate for is actually how if communities develop darkness design plans, then they can actually create periods 
of mostly darkness throughout the calendar year and then punctuate that with light festivals, which would be so meaningful. Mm. Because I think part of the problem with Times Square is that, okay, people are tourists and they come all times of year, but it's on all year long. So anyone who lives in New York, probably I lived in New York for almost four years. I mean, we avoided Times Square. Right. Um, it's nice every once in a while, but it's it's not a place that you really want to go if you live in New York City. Um, sorry if you disagree. Um, <laughs> no, I don't but, disagree. Although I like Broadway theater, but uh, yeah. you know, but that's the only reason I would go there. Um, yeah. So I think if we can develop, and so Times Square is a unique case, right? Um, but I think it would be very interesting to develop parts of cities that were supposed to be darker or darkened. Um, And so that you prepare the public for the experience of darkness and say, okay, well, it's 10 p.m. You know it's going to be dark. Plan accordingly. Um, And that is actually a lot of how national parks are treated, which is that the public goes into these natural spaces. They're asked to give very little impact upon that space, but their own safety is in their own hands. Yes, there's help and support if something bad happens, but you're hiking, you're you're interacting with the elements, and the world is not 100% safe. There is an eat-or-be-eaten quality to it. So I think the over-illumination comes from our idea of like wanting to super control everything. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then we're actually creating all these other really harmful impacts through that. So allowing people to really experience darkness, but prepare them to, I think, yeah. could be a, a good way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, my I don't have any issue with the way Times Square in and of itself is as an experience. My issue is that um, we don't know where when to stop. So what what is Times Square geographically is expanding. And so that's my issue. My issue is that um, if you move down 7th Avenue Broadway toward 34th Street, toward where Penn Station, the new Penn Station is, you're seeing more and more of these very bright screens, more and more of these very bright, you know, displays. And so I don't have a, it's creep. That's what worries me is, is this idea that, you know, once it becomes so inexpensive to do it, everybody wants to do it because you can't, you know, you're in competition. And so I really love the idea of, of this idea of zoning these areas, right? Like, like you do it for a casino or, or any other, like we, we've done this before. This is not um, a new idea. It's just thinking about, light levels um, and light level reduction in, in in relation to purpose is, I think, something to think about. Um, so I know that you're working on several writing projects and we don't have to get into all of these as, as, as we go. Um, but I guess what I would ask is, um, how do you, who do you think the decision makers are? Who do you think are the people that we need to involve in this conversation? Like, I know you're right. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about this publicly. I know you're writing a book. I know you're writing several other pieces. Who would you want to read, pick up that book and read it and be influenced by it? Who are, who are those, those people? Yeah, sure. Well, that it's sort of like two different questions because the one, my first answer to your question is that I think we need to target municipalities and, and, and decision makers in municipalities to really talk about, um, what kind of light levels do we want rather than the light levels that are kind of happening by default? Mm. Um, and I, you know, getting back to what you were saying about the creep of Times Square, I feel sorry for the, the 
um, people near Times Square because any lighting installation that they put in is going to look pale because of the adaptation of the eye. So I think zoning will be very important for that reason, to your point. Um, but my the audience that I'm targeting is, is somebody who um, wants to find more meaning in mm. their day-to-day -day life, who wants to build in more of the time that modern life promised us. Mm. I think that it's antiquated that we should work five days a week, nine to five. I think that the, I've seen many times in the design industry where a project went so quick and then information came from another project that was contiguous and then they tore up this part of the project. And how much, if we just slowed things down a little, would we actually save time, energy, resources? And so I feel like we all want, I don't know anyone who doesn't want more time with their loved ones and more time not working. And so I think that my audience is really anyone who's looking to find a way to carve more of that meaningful time into their days. And I, I honestly think it's within everyone's personal hands to do that for themselves. Mm. We've just kind of lost how. Um, and the phone, the iPhone is, is, I think, the major problem for humans in that way. Sure, sure. So I mean, it sounds like you're you're really dovetailing into sort of like the slow living movement and some of the other cultural movements that are coming out now to sort of counteract this hyperactive, hyperconnected um, culture that we have. It's I, I've been doing a lot of um, reading about uh, AI and you know the generative AI programs that are coming out now. Everyone's very excited about them and. I'm old enough to remember when everybody was really excited about social media platforms <laughs> and uh, the the tech. So Cal Newport has this uh, term techno maximalists. Um, and he, he talks about how techno maximalists can never see the downside of the thing that they're building. Mm. And when we look at social media and 20 years ago, when those platforms were really getting started, it was all about, everyone's going to have a voice and everyone's going to be connected and it's going to be great because everyone deserves that. And isn't that wonderful? And we can't, we can't wind back that clock like this, that, you know, that's where we are now. Yeah. But anyone that thought about the philosophy of communication and why there were gatekeepers in the first place and why everyone wasn't on television all the time and why everyone wasn't published in the newspaper, there is something to having gatekeepers and quality control. And that's how you have yeah. you know, reasonable debate versus what happens on social media sometimes. And I, um, I'm seeing that whole cycle happen again with AI. And what's interesting to me is it's like, we can, we can make more work faster because the AI bot will help us. And it's not entirely clear to me that that's a, a, a goal we should have. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I see these articles. It's like, um, you know, I use chat G, uh, GPT to help me write a book. And it's like, well, didn't you want to write the book? Isn't that why you started? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I yeah. don't know. I, I mean, so bringing all this back to light um, and, and dark skies, um, what are, uh, maybe this is not 
I didn't, I didn't prep this in question in advance. So if you don't, if you don't have a ready answer, it's okay. But what are a couple of things that you think people can do to infuse a little more peace and, and therefore darkness into their, into their daily ritual? You touched on this a little bit in the beginning, but if there are two or three things that you think somebody can listening to this can just sort of immediately jump on, what, what would those be? Sure. I mean, I advocate for darkness because it is the, the counterpoint that is so needed, but my larger message is a connection to the natural daylight cycle. Sure. So, um, and this is, this is not my own. This is very common knowledge, but you want to get 20 minutes of light on your body, uh, sunlight or cloud light and whatever the weather is. Uh, and if it's cloud light, you probably want 30 minutes in the morning to start your circadian day. Because right now where we are, we're inside JP and it's just the light level is so much lower. Yeah. So it's not enough. Um, and then I would also say, look at the sky uh, at one point during the day, fill your gaze with the sky. When you do this, it's actually uh, something that James Terrell talks about in his work is that you actually short circuit the visual system when you only see one thing, it's called Gansfeld. And mm. when you do that, you actually then access your internal landscape. And so that is a way to sort of cut away from all of the stimulus and become more of a transmitter than a receiver. Mm. So I think that's a really important thing to do throughout the day. And it only takes three minutes to change the cadence of your thought this way. Mm. So I think starting your day with light, making sure you actually fill your day, clean the slate, fill your gaze with the sky, then feel dusk take place and then bring the light levels down. And so none of this is rocket science. It's actually age old to how we ever lived. And so I really consider the natural daylight cycle, our Rosetta stone for mm. how we should really light and operate. Yeah. I think that's, that's all spot on. Um, I don't know. Uh, I would also just throw in there, um, go outside without your phone. Yes. Um, yeah. you know, I am as, <laughs> Listen, in my world, I make a lot of content. I'm a salesperson. I'm more connected than I want to be sometimes. It is very much a habit of mine for me to go reach for it, you know, in all my empty pockets of the day. Um, but I find that I'm less stressed out and more engaged with the work I'm doing when I find times to put it just all the way away. Um, yes. Uh, I will also say, and this is, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Our eyes are designed for seeing light fall on objects. That's how mm -hmm. our eyes were developed. Mm -hmm. So there is a little bit of something to analog tools when it comes to this, is that light emanating from something is not a natural um, experience for our eyes and for our brains. Light falling on things is. And so um, I still take notes on paper. I still like to read paper books because that is how our eyes are meant to see. And that's what our, our sort of experience in the world was developed in through evolu from an evolutionary uh, point of view. So I'll just throw those things out there too. I, I think that's totally valid. And I was also kind of um, riffing with a friend this week, um, actually related to that study of 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. being mm. particularly toxic. And the way that I was thinking about it, and this is again, based on intuition only, 
but that at night we're actually meant to be using our rods, which are at the periphery of our, our um, retinas. Mm. And then, uh, but when you have a phone in your face, you're actually shorting out the rods. So this is suddenly this like weird blind spot. And then you are focusing with your cones. Um, and I think that that is actually very twisted. Mm. So I think that when you short circuit the photoreceptor that you're meant to be using at that time of day and then overstimulating. And so there's been times, and admittedly, I also use my phone at night where I've like realized, oh gosh, that's happening. Let me turn the screen way down. And suddenly the room comes alive mm -hmm. and it feels much healthier to me. So it's intuition alone, but I think that that's a particular reason why it's so unhealthy for us because we flipped our rod and cone use on its head. Um, so I think that that has something to do with it. Absolutely. Uh, well, Jane, this was so great to have you on the show and, and to talk about this. I could, we could talk about this. Uh, I could talk about it for hours. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, where can people find you? Where should people be following you on social media? Um, how do we, we keep this message going for folks? Yes. Well, please join the Anatomy of Night community. Um, JP are, and I are there on Instagram. And um, honestly, that community warms my heart every day. It's a, a lot of people who want to return to a more environmentally conscious, um, nature-focused way of living. Um, and so it's really a, a, a wonderful conversation that's happening. Um, and so please, please join there. And um, yeah, I would say that's the ma main place that you can find me online right now. For sure. For sure. Um, we'll have links to your Instagram account and to the website in the show notes. Um, and I, I think, listen, uh, I, I really mean it when I say Jane is an inspiration to many people within the lighting industry and outside of lighting industry. Um, there is no good light without darkness. And so um, it, it's just, it's, it's the contrast that we need and we need to build it more into our daily lives. So Jane, thank you for everything you do. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, JP. It's been great. I want to thank Jane for coming on the podcast. Um, I just had such a great time in this conversation. It's so important to the future of our outdoor environments for wildlife or people. And um, it was fantastic. If this conversation was helpful for you, hit that like and subscribe button. If you watched it on YouTube, I really appreciate it. Um, hit that button and uh, join me for more of these. And if you listen to the audio podcast, please leave a comment on your favorite platform, share it with a friend. It helps the show grow and it helps uh, get the message about good light and good darkness out to more people. Thanks so much. And I'll see you on the next one.